It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Lee. Well, welcome to the Monday morning edition of Daily Thunder. We have some... uh, Really fun guests here that we've known uh, for a long time. So it's just really neat seeing you guys in uh, in town for the wedding, Susie's wedding. That's really neat. Uh, we are starting, uh, for those of you that are streaming or going to catch this via podcast, uh, we're starting a new semester today, and it's actually a beta version of our new practicum training. And so we're starting that today, and it's going to be a three-week version instead of a five-week version. So we have all our guinea pigs uh, in town for that, which is really going to be fun. And so what better way to kick it off than with Daily Thunder uh, to start with, but then Jonathan-esque. And of course, we have Jonathan Harms here visiting, so he's sort of feeling good about that, uh, <laughs> that his name ends up on the, the screen in his first day. Uh, but... Jonathan-esque, I, I, I really like it. it I have, I've had different messages on like pulling a Jonathan. There's something about Jonathan that is a model, and this is interesting because this is a different angle than what I typically will teach on with Jonathan, which is the fact that he wasn't willing to be numbered with the fearful, uh, with, with, Paul, with Saul, his father, and the, the 600 that didn't have any uh, weapons, but was willing to go and uh, go after the Philistines with his armor bearer. It's a great story. And so that's usually what I'm referencing when I'm talking about Jonathan. But in this one, I'm going to take a different angle and, and draw out a different dimension. And since, uh, for those of you that have been here, I've been going through a series called The Marvel of Manliness, and which I would sort of like to milk for a long time. I really love this topic, and I'm sort of saddened thinking that I may need to end it uh, someday soon to transition into something. But who knows, maybe the whole practicum will just keep this uh, series going. So uh, this is going to fit in that, but this is a a general truth too. It's not just a, what we're going to see is manly, but that's what's odd about the story. Actually, this is almost like the inverse of what you'd expect because the relationship between David and Jonathan is not normal for us as men to know how to process and to, uh, to think through. It doesn't feel manly, if that makes sense. It's like, Come on, you're not, so, you know, guy-guy relationships are supposed to be of a certain nature. And this is, there's a real depth, but that's because it's a parallel. It's a foreshadow of the relationship uh, of uh, us with Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's a profound uh, depth of intimacy that we're going to see. So I don't know if you've ever heard me say this, but there are always two. You guys ever heard that? Uh, so... All throughout scripture, there's always two. I remember on the plane yesterday, we were coming home and someone asked me a question, the person next to me. And I said, well, uh, one of the ways that I say it is there's always two. And so then I go into this whole thing. So I, am, I guess it's, it's just automatic for me. But that's the way I think. In every situation, I'm going to see the two. And what was interesting, I think that's why it stood out to me, is uh, we were talking about the thieves on the cross, how there were two. Uh, thieves. You know, I always think of three people, you know, at Calvary, but it's interesting. You have Jesus, and then you have the two on one side and on the other. I mean, it's just fascinating. You think of a sheep, goats, you think of wheat, tares. I mean, it's just, I've never thought that before. It's like, huh, there are two with him, and then uh, they're, they're distinctly different. So in this situation, you know, and when we go through the always two, you have two covenants, you have uh, a preparatory work of the law in the Old Testament, and then you have 
the greater covenant in the New Testament uh, that actually saves. The law can show you your need of a savior, but the second is superior. It gives you your savior. It supplies you the avenue of rescue. So the flesh is our first condition, our old man condition, and as long as we remain in that, we die. There is a just condemnation that is over that, but when we believe in Jesus Christ, we actually exit. We put off the first and we put on the second. We are now wearing the second life. We are grafted into a new lineage, the lineage of Jesus Christ. And so in the Old Testament, we have the first two kings of Israel, and so we have the first who's Saul, and he's the proud, and he's the throne claimer. And this is what, what I am always fascinated about in describing it that way, is that's exactly how we are in our first condition. We are throne claimers. You see, we are actually rejected of this position. You see, this, this has been purchased by Jesus Christ. We are not the rightful heir to the throne, and yet there we sit in a seat that actually belongs to him. And so as a result, like Saul, what Saul should have done is he should have stepped down. When he was rejected of God, God made it very clear he's chosen a better man. And so what would the proper response have been? God, forgive me for my rebellion. Forgive me for my disobedience. Forgive me for not heeding your word. I want to humble myself and repent of that and say, you gave me this throne and you can take it. It is not mine to control. It is yours to do with as you see fit. And then David is anointed and maybe comes in, which would be a very awkward thing for Saul, to become a servant to a young boy, <laughs> the eighth son of Jesse. I mean, that would have been a unique story, but that would have been a great tale. Uh, maybe someone needs to write a book of what it could have been like. But so we have the first, and that's us. We're the throne claimers. And unless we repent and believe, unless we humble ourselves and become the throne yielders, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, we must become a second. We must be twice born. We must be born again. So the love of Jonathan, and listen to my subtitle on this, the loving the one God has chosen. God has chosen someone to rule your life, and it's not you. And you could look at that as a threat. Can you think of anyone in this, in this story that might desire Saul to keep his throne outside of Saul. Well, I would nominate Jonathan for that. If someone's going to desire that uh, Saul to keep his throne, it's going to be the heir apparent. Jonathan was the one in line to gain the kingdom. And so if there is a guy who should be a little upset about this quote-unquote better man, you know, I would say it would be uh, Jonathan himself. And so, but what we see is that Jonathan is a symbol of a second, so you have Saul. You can say Saul David, but you could also say Saul Jonathan. And so you see two responses to the better man. The first one is proud and rebellious and tries to kill the better man. The second one gives up his life and enters into covenant, actually giving his rightful position to David. He does what Saul should have done. He's the second. The covenant with the better man. Samuel 18, so you'll notice this is Samuel 18, 19, 20. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul, and Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor 
even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all the servants that they should kill David. So could you imagine, after all of this, Saul actually is saying, you should kill David. Doesn't that sound like our flesh? Uh, Here we are in negotiations with the Most High God, and then we have this voice that comes in from the outside. It's like, you cannot go that direction. The consequences are too grave. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. Isn't that just an interesting phraseology? But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. So Jonathan said to David, Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger. These are all different stories, by the way. I'm I'm really consolidating here. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. So when I say Jonathan-esque, what is the behavior, what is the quality of the man here that we are after? Saul was a grand man. As far as stature-wise, this man was huge. Supposedly, he was head and shoulders above all of Israel. So he's a giant in the land of Israel. And all the people are like, yeah, that's the guy we want. So according to the natural man, according to the flesh, he's the guy. And yet, according to the spirit, the way God thinks, actually Jonathan is, is making the right choice. Out of all that family line, it's like this guy is actually making the right choice. But what his choice is, is not self-aggrandizing. It's not self-promoting. He is actually giving up his life. He will never sit on that throne. And actually, he'll never live to see David sit on the throne. He's going to lay down his life. And, but what we see is a picture of the second man, the picture of our role in regards to this decision. We have an old man, and there's a new man. There's a better man that is to, to rule our life. So do we allow the old man to continue, or do we come to the cross, humble ourselves, and say, this body is no longer my own. I give up this error uh, this, this throne lineage that I have here to control my own life, to do my own thing, and I give it to the one who is better. I come and I give my life to Jesus Christ, and I say, rule me. The making and affirming of covenant. I don't know how many of you have studied covenant, but covenant is a very, very serious thing, and in American culture, North American culture, we we actually mix, mix it up with the idea of contract. So if you were to say, oh, yeah, we have a marriage covenant. Well, what that means to most people in their ears is you have a marriage contract. And a contract can be broken through violation of terms. Okay, so, you know, I expect that you will look pretty your in, our entire married life. And if you don't, hey, well, then I have reason to break off the relationship. I expect you to make me feel good feel loved, feel affirmed for all my life. So if I feel like this is not going in the direction I want, well, you've broken that side of the contract. It's a human contract with very humanish terms. And as a result, marriages fall apart all the time because they don't understand what covenant is. But contract is breakable and covenant is not. 
Now, I'm not going to say that there isn't anything that can violate covenants and can break covenant, but in its very nature, it's till death parts us. That's the concept behind covenant. You enter in without the notion of getting out. In other words, you'll do whatever it takes to make a covenant work. So in the Native American culture, which is fascinating because you think of I mean, this pagan culture, they understood covenant, blood covenant, blood brothers. They had all this. And so here you have the Hebrew culture, which is very much dyed-in-the-wool covenant uh, relationship. And then you come over to America. They kept covenant so serious in the Native American culture. If you violated covenant, you'd be hunted down for four generations and all your, all your generations. So they'd kill you and all your generations, if any survive, for four generations until you are exterminated because you are a covenant-breaking family. Boy, talk about the law of sin and death. There it is. Uh, and yet the seriousness to covenant is so grave to other cultures. We don't get it. So, like, even you see it in Sodom and Gomorrah where uh, the, the angels come in to uh, visit Lot. And a salt covenant is where you share a table. Where you, and literally, you would give up your life to preserve. So he's, I mean, I don't know if this is a good decision, but he's ready to give up his daughter to the Sodomites uh, instead of betraying the salt covenant with his uh, visitors. I mean, that, these people he just met. But the depth of what covenant meant, it was so deeply ingrained in these ancient cultures. And we don't even understand it. So when we see David and Jonathan entering into covenant, eh, you know, it might not make much of a difference to us in our mind. But this is a binding covenant with families. So he's making a covenant with the, the house of David. And so you're going to see with Mephibosheth, remember the, the lame man? You're going to see David honor that covenant. This is literally a house that has tried to kill him. David has been hunted by this house, by Jonathan's house, but he has a covenant with Jonathan. And so the descendants of Jonathan literally are going to be invited in to his house to eat at his table. But the lame are I mean, it's sort of like a leper. It's, it's, a, it's a show of, that, that disability is, is like a show of sin outwardly. And so it's like, hey, you need to keep that out of the pure domain of the temple, of the pure domain of the king. And this king says, I want that eating at my table. Incredible picture of the gospel, okay? That's the entire gospel. So the culture had a repulsion to it. And yet you see David show the heart of God to say, I want to get that because of covenant. I want to take that which is lame and have it eat at my table. So there's so many beautiful things that are taking place through what we could say the Jonathan David storyline. It is a beautiful picture of the heart of God expressed both from Jonathan to David and also from David to Jonathan. So the making and affirming of covenant. First Samuel 18.3, then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. First Samuel 20.16, so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. 1 Samuel 20, 17. Now, Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. 1 Samuel 23, 18. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. So I think it's pretty well established that they made a covenant. Uh, I think we have a few witnesses on that fact in Scripture. It's like God seems to want to have us know this. There's so many stories in Scripture, but he repeats this one over and over and over again and brings back this relationship that Jonathan and David have over and over again. 
because it's important. I mean, we know that. Anything that's in Scripture, even once, is important, let alone twice, let alone three times. When a gospel uh, story shares something four times, I think we should take note. That's a, I mean, we didn't, did we need four gospels? We could have just had one. I mean, why not just have the gospel of Matthew? Why do we need uh, Mark, Luke, and John? Matthew, Mark. It sounded funny when I just said Mark, Luke, and John. It doesn't sound normal, does it? It's like saying B, C, D instead of A, B, C, D. Did I even get that right? B, C, D, A, B, C, D. Yeah, see, it doesn't sound right when you, when you take off the, the front end. And so this is important. Hudson Taylor refers to the new covenant relationship that we have with Jesus Christ as the exchanged life. The term for covenant, there's, there's different terms in the Hebrew for how to describe it, but it's like a cutting. And so you'll see like the animals cut in half. You'll see Abraham create this like walk through, which is symbolic of, I mean, it's, if you want to say it this way, this is what will happen to you if you violate covenant. I mean, it's, it's a very, very serious thing. And in the New Testament, we're not, cutting the same way but we are it's just it's a spiritual cutting not a physical cutting in the old testament they had circumcision which was a cutting they had the cutting of you know in half of animals and there was these these symbols there was the cutting of i know this is going to sound gross but wrists to to create a mixture of blood and then you would have a scar on your hand and if you were being threatened by an enemy all you had to do is raise up your arm and show them the scar you know what that would say to them you touch me, there's someone in covenant with me who will hunt you down. Are you sure you want to do this? Isn't it an amazing thought to think that there's a cutting in our soul, which literally before the spiritual powers, we literally have to just show it and show that we're in covenant. Are you sure you want to mess with me? You do know who I'm in covenant with too. It's not an earthly man. It is the creator of the heavens and the earth. If you've ever heard that one uh, quote of there was a stag that used to roam freely uh, in, in Caesar's land and it, it wore a and no one would ever touch it because it wore a sign about its neck that said touch me not I belong to Caesar yeah that's pretty cool that, that's us okay we're wearing a sign a signal of covenant so for us there is a cutting you know that there's a circumcision that takes place when we believe in Jesus and we humble ourselves. we are enti- entering into a certain cutting a cutting off. You see, in the Old Testament, I don't want to go into what circumcision is with any great detail, but I'm just sort of hoping you understand what it is. But there is a, a cutting off of what would be likely the best symbol of fleshly control in the entire body. Okay, now I don't want to go into that at any great level, like you could just imagine. Some of you are like uncomfortable enough with that, right? But in the New Testament, what we have is a cutting off of the flesh. So we are, when we enter into Christ, we are being circumcised and there is a cutting off of the old man, of that which once controlled us. We are entering into a new life, a new way of living. And so in this exchange, you're going to recognize that there is a giving up. There is a letting go. And so what you see in the New Testament is a putting off and a putting on. Well, what you see in the Old Testament covenant model between J- Jonathan and David you are seeing the same process. So this is a picture of the gospel hidden in the storyline of the Old Testament. It's not an accident. We know that's what God does everywhere, but it's, it's quite profound as it is drawn to the surface. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul, and Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow 
and his belt. So in the ancient culture, that means something. To us, that's just odd, okay? If, if I was suddenly just starting to take off my shirt and giving it to you, taking off my belt and giving it to you, you guys would all start to panic and go, well, what's going on here? We don't do stuff like that. Just like in the book of Ruth when take off their shoe, or how about the servant that sticks his hand under the thigh of Abraham? It's like, what? They're odd behaviors to us. We were joking at a table last night. I was in Pennsylvania yesterday, and we were, we were joking about, uh, actually it was Saturday night, Ryan Priest, uh, he was actually the sponsor of this thought. Uh, but we were talking about, oh, making cheese, because we were in uh, this Amish uh, territory in, in Pennsylvania, and they had a great, I mean, famous cheese right down the road. And... So uh, they were talking about getting something from the lining of the gut of a cow to start the culture for the cheese. And I go, that is disgusting. And then Ryan Priest was like, it's funny because we don't think that our food is disgusting here in, here in North America. We're like, it's totally normal. But other places, what they do is so gross that, you know, that one egg that they hide in the ground, I don't know what country that is. And then it like ferments or rots and then you bring it out and it's a delicacy. It's like, who in their right mind would consider that a delicacy, right? But the same thing is true. The cultural understanding, to them it's normal, just like the kiss on the cheek is very normal. But then you come into our culture and it feels a little awkward and our personal space is being violated because we are a different culture, which is interesting because that's what we were joking about is the culture of cheese is like gained from the inside of the cow's gut, it's like, that is terrible. I don't know where our culture is defined from, but that's probably a good description of it. <laughs> our culture has been defined from the inside of the cow's gut. Uh, so, we'll move on. <laughs> so we have four sacred elements of exchange. So we have a robe, we have garments, sword and bow, and girdle or belt. And so the robe is symbolic of authority. Remember, he's going, Jesus is going to give us a robe of righteousness. Position, name, and reputation. So remember when I'll say, like, what's your position? And we'll be like, in Christ. Well, we're in the robe. You see, he has taken off his robe, and he has wrapped us in it. Now, the profundity, I really like the word profundity, so it's fun to be able to use it. The profundity of that is found in what he is doing in that covenantal relationship. This is my body. This is my blood. Where was that enacted but on a cross? And guess what? His clothing is removed. He literally is giving up, taking off his clothing so that we could be clothed. I mean, so all of this is profound in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we have robe, which is authority, position, name, and reputation. Then garments, so these are, this is the, the, the clothes under the robe, uh, which for us, again, is a little odd. It's sort of like coat and then the clothes underneath. Possessions and inheritance. Sword and bow, protection, preservation, watchful eye of defense. Girdle or belt is enabling power, quickening strength. If you are going to run, or fight, it's like gird up your loins is the term in the Old Testament. Not a term that we usually are going to use either, but it's basically tighten the belt. It's be resolved. There's something about that belt region which is resolved, resolution, oomph. And you'd actually have to take your 
robe uh, or your uh, whatever garments that are hanging down. I don't know how to describe Jewish dress, but you'd have to tie it up. And so you'd wrap it a certain way and so you could run. And so gird up the loins. And so this is it power, quickening strength. So look at Luke 22. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And he said unto them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave unto them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. So what you see is, and and if you've ever heard me teach on uh, communion, like before we do it, I'll almost always talk about the exchange dimension of it. We see communion as a remembrance, which it is. There's nothing wrong with that. However, it's a remembrance of a covenant, and a covenant is an exchange. And so when we recognize that he has taken off his robe, he has removed his garments, he has bent his knee and washed our feet with his very life. He set down all of his almighty power and was willing to become weak and helpless as a little lamb. He gave us his strength. He poured it out as a drink offering. And so what we see is that we are the recipients of this. But to receive and to, to enter into covenant does not mean that you just watch Jonathan remove all of that. But you remove all of that and give it. And so that's why you'll always see me walk through communion saying, he gave us his body, but in exchange for ours. He gave us his blood or his life in exchange for ours. In other words, if you want to enter into covenant with Christ, you don't keep your life and add his on. You don't keep your body and then try and become his. You see, you have a privilege of entry into a higher position. It is not something you should begrudge, If we're going to look at it from an equity standpoint, because many people will complain, Jesus asked for too much in this covenant. He can't ask for everything. Well, he's offering you everything, and his everything is a whole lot bigger than your everything. So if we're going to look at it equity-wise or justice-wise, well, this is very unfair, very very unfair in in your favor. And so as a result, maybe we should question that. Maybe you shouldn't get as much out of the deal. You see, it is outrageous what we are getting. And he just asked that we would give up our robe. We would give up our clothing. We would give up our weapons and our strength. We would give up our belt so that we could have one so vastly superior. So it is a fact, guys. He asks for everything. So just as a, uh, an opportunity to reminisce to remember to really grab a hold of the grandeur of his offering to I always liken what we have to bring to the table is a handful of pebbles it's rather pathetic now we think our handful of pebbles is really good right but imagine that you line up 10 million uh, train cars and this is the inheritance of Jesus Christ and they're all packed full of jewels and he says I'd like to give you that but you need to let go 
of your handful of pebbles. We're like, he asked for everything. Who's giving you 10 million miles full of train cars packed full of the riches of heaven? What are we complaining about? In fact, it's embarrassing when you actually think about it that we even have a pause. The one who is engaging in covenant with us is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Remember? It takes, I don't know what it was, a million, two million years at the speed of light to get to the next major galaxy. Okay, that's at the speed of light. And it's like well over a million years to do it. We've only, I mean, since Adam, it's been like close to 6,000. So even if you stick Adam in some kind of space pod moving at the speed of light, which is seven and a half times around the earth in one second, he is, I mean, not even on a blip on the map on, the, on the, that little uh, computer you know, progress chart, you know, moving along. He's not even close. 6,000 out of 1 million or 2 million, I think it might even be 2 million years. That's, that's just the next major galaxy, and it's estimated there's over 200 billion galaxies. The one who holds all of that, encompasses all of that, has condescended to seek you out and ask you for your handful of pebbles. And you begrudge that. Think about that. That is so outrageous that we should fall just flat on our face, dead right now, in light of that reality. Yes, he asks for everything. But you do know he's giving you everything he has, everything he is. So let's make sure we remember that next time we're thinking of grumbling and complaining in the wilderness. So let's go through each one of these. Our robe, which is our position our name, our fame, and authority in exchange for his. So our position, what's our position? In Christ, oh no, we're in Adam, right? Before this. So sorry, I was gonna, that was misleading to you. <laughs> our position is in Adam, right? And we're going to exchange it for his position, which is seated at the right, right hand of majesty on high, okay? Our position, which is condemnation, <laughs> eternal separation from God, the lake of fire ultimately, I mean, this is not a good position. So we need to let that go in exchange for his position. Now, what's interesting is he's going to take on our position. And he's actually going to go where we were supposed to go. Isn't that just a fascinating statement? He's going to go into the earth. He's going to die the death we were supposed to. Praise God, he's uh, conquered the grave. So listen to this list. Will you give up your reputation? Will you be willing to be deemed a fanatic and a fool? Will you surrender your name and allow it to be swallowed up in his name? No longer will anything be about you, but your life from this day forward will be about him and his glory. Will you give up position, fame, and worldly authority in order to become royalty in his kingdom? It's hard when, when you know that you only have one life to live. It can, be, it can be difficult to let go because we want to milk this life for all it's worth. And so the devil will oftentimes stick opportunities in there for the advancement of our glory. And this is why it's key to remember the covenant relationship we have with Jesus Christ. Number two, our garments, our earthly possessions and our corruptible inheritance in exchange for the eternal treasure of the kingdom. Will you relinquish everything you possess for him? Will you give up the applause of men, the security of financial stability, even the comforts of a self-indulgent existence? Will you give him your health, your wealth, your every material thing for him to do with as he sees fit? 
Just imagine if we were to actually walk through this list and ponder it. Instead of just quickly, you know, gloss it over and say, oh yeah, sure, absolutely, of course I will. Do we recognize what it means to enter into covenant? When you're getting married, it's a covenant. And you, I'm hoping you don't rush into it and just randomly, it's like, who are you again? Oh, but I'll, I'll covenant with you. You're entering in with thoughtfulness. Before you go and wage that war, make sure you count the cost. Before you try and build that building, count the cost. Before you enter into covenant with Jesus Christ, you should count the cost. You should know what this means. Now, when you do that, God's not afraid of you counting the cost. Look at the ledger balance. Okay, I need to give my handful of pebbles. Well, that's a lot. And then I'm going to get, whoa, page, 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 10 million pages thick of all the benefits that are there. And 10 million, that's just the first edition uh, of all it is. And then you go and there's this whole library full of millions of books, uh, each 10 million pages thick of all the benefits and all the advantages and all the treasures that are uh, cataloged uh, for your sake. Our sword and our bow, our human defense in exchange for his almighty defense. Will you let down your defenses and allow him to remodel your life? Will you allow him to discipline you, convict you, transform you into something that this world will reject, revile, and crucify? Will you surrender to him your self-preservation in exchange for his preservation of your existence on planet earth? Will you allow him to use your life to fight his battles rather than your own self-aggrandizing battles? So <clears throat> my dad's name is Winston. My middle name is Winston. My dad was named, uh, he was born right uh, in World War II, and Winston Churchill was probably the most famous man in America, even though he was British, uh, at the time. And his stance in World War II against uh, Hitler was, it's legendary, it's the stuff of legends, it's probably one of the most impacting things in world history uh, that has ever happened, is what took place in that. And uh, Winston Churchill's mindset in this, there's so many moments where he almost died in World War II, because he's a risk taker. They wanted him to stay in an underground bunker the whole time, he would come up every day and, and examine things, he'd come up when there's an air raid, he'd stand on the top of a building and watch it, uh, he just loved war. He, lo he was fascinated by it. He wanted to be with the people, so he'd come out and observe all the wreckage during the Blitz and you know, when all of London was being bombed. Uh, and, he, and then he, would, he was flying back after meeting with FDR in uh, America, a key meeting that is, you know, changed the landscape of both our, our country's history and uh, Great Britain. And he's flying back over the Atlantic, and he wants to take uh, the wheel, like the, uh, the helm of the, uh, the plane, so he's the prime minister. I mean, what are you supposed to say? So the guy, and this bodyguard is always with him everywhere he goes, and, and he's always stressed out over Winston Churchill because his whole life is to protect Winston Churchill, and Winston Churchill is always sticking himself. So he, he's piloting the plane, and he's going along, and uh, the guy, and this is like 1941 or so, and the pilot says, so when was the last time you flew a plane? It was 1913. Uh, and you actually have it on film with him saying 1913. It's a pretty cool shot. Uh, but so, and here he's now flying uh, a major plane over the Atlantic, and it's not on uh, it's not on autopilot. This is like him flying, and so he's he's banking a few times. And so I'm stressed out even hearing about it all these years later. It's like you're possibly the most important man in the world right now, <laughs> and there's the only thing that's standing against Hitler. Okay, and 
Could we take, I could imagine how these guys were feeling. And that, that's, I even know he's going to survive, right? And I'm stressed out with the story. But they go, uh, they go a little too far in their turn to get to London. And at the time, Germany was occupying France. And so now they get a little too close to France. I mean, so close to the German territory in the, uh, that the, the German uh, air, air force could have easily gone up and, and gotten them, right? But now here's what happens. They turn and they look like they're coming out of France. So the British are thinking it looks like enemy plane. So now they actually send up, I don't know what it was, like 10 fighters to take it down. And Winston Churchill's in it. I mean, this is like, this, there's some great stories, okay? And there's story after story with Winston Churchill. It's like, buddy, boy, you're making us stressed out. And one of the key moments, this is why I'm bringing all this up, is he had just done something crazy. I don't remember what it was. And his bodyguard, uh, who is just a really great man, right? He loved Winston Churchill, and he would lay down his life for him. Uh, he's sort of like, sir... <laughs> Sir, I need you to go back down to your bunker. And Winston Churchill says something like this. I'm going to get the quote probably wrong, but it's, it's, I, I'm going to get the content right. I'll get the exact words wrong. Uh, <clears throat> he says his name, and he says, uh, I have someone else uh, that is uh, protecting me other than you. And, he, and then the guy says, uh, and he mentions this other guy. He's like, are you talking about so-and-so, you know, Franz? Uh, and, and then he looks at him and he goes, just points upward. He says, I have a job to do, and until that job is done, I'm going to be alive. Uh, and it's weird, because that's how he lived. He lived as an untouchable. And, I mean, he would go straight into the wars to visit, and, and it was like, no, 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 what are you doing? Everything you're not supposed to do if you're the prime minister is to risk your life, and yet he wanted to be with the people, and that's one of the reasons the people loved him so much. So he's like helping a lady out of the wreckage, you know, it's like, uh, sir, sir, and he has blood all over him as he's helping this lady out of the rubble. Uh, imagine what that would be like for the lady to, to look up and see your prime minister unburying you out of rubble uh, and helping carry you to uh, the ambulance. I mean, that's just like, there was something about it. I was like, I like that. Uh, I should have called this Winston-esque. And then instead of Jonathan getting you know, his name in it, I could have had my middle name in it. <laughs> Number four, our belt. Our ability to perform in exchange for his enabling power and quickening grace. Okay, so is it by your own works? Is it by your own ability? Or are you willing to switch that out, trade that out, exchange that out for his ability? And of course, this is the transaction of the cross. You see, as long as you look to your own ability and your own righteousness, you need to recognize it's his filthy rags in heaven. But Jesus Christ has come and lived out the perfect righteousness. And he says, I offer that to you. And when we put off that first and we trust him, we are actually able to enjoy his enabling power and his quickening grace, not just his gracious salvation 2,000 years ago, but his gracious salvation in the here and now where he wants to live inside of us via the Holy Spirit. So will you allow him to break you? Will you surrender to him your self-derived strength? so that he may replace it with his own heavenly version of world-altering power? Will you give him the privilege of keeping you dependent so that he might prove his might in and through your life? Will you allow him the privilege of showcasing his glory to this world 
through your existence. So he asks for everything, yes. But remember, he gives us everything that could possibly matter in return. Everything you will need for life and that you will need for godliness, he has supplied you. Now I just want you to ponder that. I know we've brought that up many times. But everything you need for life, okay, that's a lot. Uh, There's a lot that could be included in that. How about this one? Everything you need for godliness, which is the God behavior. So for you to be able to function in such a way that Jesus would be seen through your life, you've been given everything you need. So for the practical side of life and for the spiritual side of life, you have been supplied everything. Would you let go of your life in order to get that? The covenant exchange. I'm just going to call this trading robes. He took on my sin that I may take on his righteousness. He took on my curse, my punishment, that I may take on his liberty. He took on my separation that I may take on his sonship. He took on my shame that I may take on his favor and bear his glory. He took on my sorrows that I may take on his joy. He took on my sufferings that I may take on his comfort. He took on my Adam position that I may take on his kingly position. He took on my poverty that I may take on his inheritance. And even now he takes on my body and wears it as his own. And I take on his body and am seated in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father in the person of Christ. Oh boy, that's good stuff, guys. That's amazing. Jonathan took off his robe. Will we? So when we run into that better man, how did Jonathan respond? Well, he delighted in him. He loved him. He covenanted with him. So many of us know that delight, delight yourself in the Lord, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. What does that look like? It looks like a covenant. If you truly love and delight in him, then pull a Jonathan. Do what a Jonathan would do. You have a robe. Remove it. Garments. You have a sword, shield, bow. Hand them over. So the right hand of, in in the Hebrew understanding, is the hand of strength. This is the side of control and authority. And so it's interesting because the priests that are going to work in the temple, they need to stand before the high priest, Aaron, who cuts open a bull and then dips his hand in the blood of the bull and then the priest submits himself. And he's going to smear blood on the right ear. He's going to smear blood on the right thumb. He's going to smear blood on the right toe. Which is symbolic of the giving up of life in covenant. I mean, that's what it is. This is where you hear. So whatever your king says, you will do. This is where you control with your right thumb. There's not a better picture on the entire body of controlling grip than that. It says, give me that grip. Let me have control over your life. And then let me have that toe. Where you go in this life, let me be the one that leads you. And so if you're gonna enter into that sanctuary, if you're gonna enter into that temple worship, if you're gonna enter into the work of the ministry of the temple, which is what Christianity is, this is the ministry of the work of the temple. And we are priests in this, in that regard, even though he's the high priest. He's the one with the blood. We submit to it. And in submitting, we are giving up our right We are giving up control. We are giving up our way. And what we do is we inherit his strength 
and we sit at the right hand of majesty in Christ Jesus. In exchange for what? Giving up our own way, our own agenda, our own control, and our own uh, purpose and calling in this life. We, we take on his. So I want to read through this where we insert our name here. Okay, so this is a great meditation, a great way to work with scripture at times. And so I want you to do it. I'm, uh, I'm trying to think how I read it, uh, because it's almost easier for someone else just to read it silently, but I'll, I'll see what happens here. The soul of, you've put in your name, was knit to the soul of Jesus, and, insert your name, loved him as his or her own soul. Then, insert your name, and Jesus So then you, so like Eric, and Jesus made a covenant because he or she loved him as his own soul. And your name took off the robe that was on him or her and gave it to Jesus with his or her armor, even to his or her sword and his or her bow and his or her belt. Now the old man spoke to, uh, instead of Saul, I put old man. Uh, So the old man spoke to, put in your name, and to all his or her servants that they should kill Jesus. But, put in your name, delighted greatly in Jesus. So, put in your name, told Jesus, saying, my old man seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. So, put in your name, said to Jesus, whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. So, insert your name, made a covenant with the house of Jesus saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of Jesus' enemies. So, put your name here, arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month for he, was, he or she was grieved for Jesus because his old man had treated him shamefully. Isn't that great? Good stuff. Covenanting with God's chosen. The better man awaits your answer. So for each one of us, you know, for those of you that are just starting the practicum, I think this is a pretty good way to start. It's almost like starting with communion without the elements. In other words, we don't have the, uh, the juice and the bread here this morning to do this, but this, the juice and the bread are a symbol, an outward symbol of an inward reality of covenant. And just like a marriage ceremony is an outward demonstration with witness of an inward decision. If you haven't made the decision before you get up there on the altar to say, I do, you're in a bad situation. I would never recommend that, okay? In other words, it's a decision before then that now you make official. And so there's something very special about baptism because of that. It's an outward demonstration. Communion, it's an outward demonstration. And so, but it doesn't mean you have to have those elements in your hand right now to be able to reaffirm and, a, and freshly state your covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes, Lord. I want what you have, and I give up all I have in order to get it. I want the life of Jesus. I want the truth of Jesus. I want the power of Jesus. I want the grace of Jesus. So what do I need to do? Let go of my life, humble myself, and enter into him to trust him and say, whatever you desire to do with this life, Lord, you do it. Father, may you receive glory, honor, and praise. Thank you for what your son has done in the shedding of his own blood and the breaking of his own body. The extension out to us 
at that meal where he would say, eat and drink. Partake of this. Lord, here we are, and we want to declare that our bodies belong to you and not to us. That our blood or our life is not our own. It's yours. And Lord, even though we don't know what it means to say, do with us what you will, we accept the fact that you know best, that you are all wise, and that everything you do for us is love. Lord, so we trust you with our life. We trust you implicitly with our life. We trust you to take us through difficulties, sufferings, trials, and tribulations. And we know that everything the enemy would mean for evil would be turned to good and that you mean all things for good to those that love you and are called according to your purpose. Lord, we trust you with our life. And may we be as Jonathan was unto David. And may we delight in you and love you at that level. We love you so much. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.